Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined with my guest, Gabriel Ott. Gabe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Gabe is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Freenome. Gabe, could you give a little bit of background on yourself? Uh, what is Freenome and what is the problem you guys are trying to solve? Sure. My background was traditionally in tech. Then I went and did some grad work uh, looking at epigenetics and chromatin biology of aging and age-associated diseases like cancer. And after that, we decided, my co-founders, uh, Riley Ennis and Charlie Roberts and I uh, got together and we started thinking about what is the missing piece in the cure for cancer. I think there was a realization among my co-founders and I uh, coming from sort of different backgrounds that detecting these diseases at the right time was actually the missing piece because a lot of the therapeutics that we have today for cancer, they work pretty well in early stage disease like stage one, stage two but they don't work as well in stage three, stage four. So because 80 to 90% of all the cancers today are detected in late stage, if you can only sort of push that up and make it into an early stage detection uh, problem, then you would effectively cure 80% of the cancers. And you mentioned missing pieces. So can we zoom out a little bit and just talk about the other pieces? So if you were to create sort of like a you know mini market map on a high level of companies curing cancer in which different subspaces can you give just for us for people who are unfamiliar just a little picture of what that what that map might look like sure it, it all starts with cancer screening which is the space that freenome plays in and screening is before sort of formal diagnostics right screening is uh, a blood test or uh, a fecal test or you know some kind of a test that a healthy presumably healthy patients uh, could take is color in the same space too I, I would say color is more in the prevention space. I'll let Othman explain, yeah. you know, exactly where he sees color at, but color looks at your genome, right? Um, and, and the mutations that you were born with. And they use that information to try to assess how predisposed are you to getting cancer? That's different than screening, which is the space that Freenome is in. I guess that follows where color, um, is and, what Freenome is trying to do is create tests that tells you right now whether or not you have a tumor in your body. That will be followed up by some kind of confirmatory diagnostics that confirms you know, whether or not you have it, and then you enter the treatment. So throughout this entire uh, process, I think over the last 30, 40 years, I think we've gotten much, much better at the therapeutic side on how we handle the patients once they have cancer. But we haven't put as much emphasis on detecting cancer at the right time because cancer is a very hard disease to detect because you're asymptomatic for a really, really long time. It's only when the tumor starts getting into stage three, stage four, post-metastasis, where it's spreading everywhere in your body that you start having serious symptoms. Uh, and because Medicine as a whole largely is designed around symptomatic medicine. Uh, so we wait until somebody has symptoms before we treat it. That works really well for things like colds where we can actually, you know, help you, uh, with that disease, even post symptomatic for diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's disease and these other more severe age associated diseases. 
it's a much harder proposition once you start having symptoms because that's usually an indication that you have a late stage disease. Is 23andMe also in the prevention? Like what color? Yeah, I think uh, 23andMe color, these companies have done a really good job of characterizing what are the mutations are you actually born with? These are called germline mutations as opposed to somatic mutations. Somatic mutations are mutations that you accumulate throughout your lifetime. Whereas germline mutations are mutations that you're born with that are in every cell of your body, right? Cancer is a disease of sort of combined germline and somatic alterations. Um, so the germline mutations that you're born with predisposes you. And for some people, it predisposes you so much that you have cancer when you're young, right? This is the a class of diseases called pediatric cancers. And th- those are, you know, pretty much solely due to the mutations that you were born with. Most cancers are not like that because most people get cancer when they're uh, later on in life. They're usually due to some kind of predisposition from their germline. And then basically based on sort of the mutations that you accumulate throughout your lifetime, the somatic mutations, you end up having cancer or not. Yeah. And what is the sort of innovation behind Freenome from like a scientific perspective that has led you to do or or to even attempt what others, what has been so hard? So I think there was, it's a confluence of a lot of things, right? Understanding the genome is a really complicated problem that has been really unlocked in recent years by 23andMe, Color, Invites of the world, using latest technologies, both on the hardware and the software side. It's not dissimilar for what Freenome is trying to do. This cancer screening has been a really difficult problem, and it's because some of the latest breakthroughs in machine learning that allows us to study the complexities around bioanalytes that are uh, floating around in your blood and analyzing them, figuring out what's relevant for cancer versus not is a really uh, computationally difficult problem that has been sort of impossible in the past, but seems to be more possible now. Because if you think about it, if you're just studying the genome, like if you're looking for germline mutations, that's 3 billion bases, 3 billion A, C, Gs, and Ts. Understanding that information alone is a difficult thing to do, but then add multiple levels of complexity to this. So one of the signatures that we look at is what's called cell-free DNA. DNA fragments, these are DNA fragments that have been spewed out by your cells as they die into your bloodstream. So take those 3 billion bases, fragment it into fragments of 100 base pairs or something like that uh, into the bloodstream, and then try to figure out which fragments come from cancer cells, which fragments come from immune cells and other cells like fibroblasts, and try to figure out what is the signature that's associated with the presence or absence of the tumor. So it's it's almost an order of magnitude more complicated than some of these other genomic problems that have existed in the past. And your big competitor is Grail? I don't really see Grail as a competitor. I think this problem isn't going to be solved by one company. But, but share more a bit about what, what Grail is doing and the approach they're taking to the extent that... I, don't, I only know what they've um, really talked about publicly. And my understanding is they look at ctDNA, circulating tumor DNA, which is a subclass of cell-free DNA. And these are DNA fragments that specifically come from cancer cells when they die and spew out their DNA. And the idea is if you can sequence those fragments, then you can um, essentially detect mutations associated with cancer. Yeah. What do you think? So you mentioned that there can be multiple winners. What do you think about this market that allows for multiple winners, whereas perhaps some markets are winner-take-all? Sure. So... There was a class of diagnostics companies that came into existence over the last 10 years uh, in the non-invasive prenatal testing space, what's called NIPT. So these are for pregnant women to essentially assess the uh, genetic status of their baby. 
And one of the breakthroughs has been that instead of having to do an invasive puncture in utero, you could do this just from a blood draw from the mother. That particular application uses a similar technology. It also uses cell-free DNA. Some of the people that have concerns in this space, you know, fear that the cancer space is going to go the way of an IPT. And what happened in an IPT is these companies saturated the market very quickly, and there wasn't that much technology differentiation among the different companies. The reason why I believe this is not going to happen for cancer is there's 200 cancer types, right? Cancer isn't a single disease. It's actually, you know, hundreds of different diseases that we sort of classify under the same bucket as cancer. Even lung cancer, there are significantly different types of lung cancers. For example, there's non-small cell lung cancer, which we have done a really good job of um, uh, treating over the last few years. And then there's another class called small cell lung cancer, which we're having more difficulties with. So I, I think it's these kinds of uh, nuanced differences for each one of these diseases that will make it very hard for this market to saturate anytime soon. And because of the difficulties of just getting even a single diagnostic out, and I'm not even talking about the technology, the science, right? I'm talking about the regulatory, the reimbursement, all these things that follow. I'm hard to hard pressed to sort of think how one company could tackle you know all these different uh, cancer types simultaneously. Right. Where do you put a company like Flatiron in the cancer market map, or are they even in it? I think they're downstream of us. They work specifically with oncology clinics and oncology clinicians. Um, so these are people who have already been diagnosed with cancer, and they're gathering real world data around how they're responding to certain treatments which is also a very important part of it. Because if you look at certain classes of treatments that we have, uh, like chemotherapy, radiation, the success rate uh, from a five-year survival perspective is about five to 10%, maybe. And then if you're talking about even the latest cutting-edge drugs, uh, these classes of drugs called immuno-oncology drugs, immunotherapies, the success rate, I think, is about 20%. Yeah. We um, we invested in a company called RDMD, which is trying to do. Fire. I did too. Oh, awesome. yeah. <laughs> so our co-investor. What, what excited you about 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 RDMD? So I invested through the healthcare co-op, which is a, a healthcare or early stage healthcare fund that I'm a partner of. And I think there are certain sectors of the healthcare system that gets completely ignored. I think rare diseases is a great example of this because so much money is in cancer or in Alzheimer's disease and these other uh, types of uh, diseases. There are these rare diseases, which are, you know, just defined as sort of much smaller uh, classes of diseases from a incidence perspective that completely get ignored by uh, some of the, you know, major pharmaceutical companies and things like that. What I love about what RDMD is doing is they're solving the biggest, well, I think one of the biggest pain points of doing clinical trials to actually create new classes of drugs or solutions to these rare diseases, which is to, you know, simply identify the patients who are suffering from those indications, you know, getting them to participate in uh, clinical trials so that we can actually study the rare diseases so that we can actually come up with solutions for them, uh, which is a, a much harder proposition when you're talking about these rare diseases that may happen, you know, one out of a hundred thousand people, one out of a million people. Uh, as opposed to cancer, which is much more frequent. Yeah. So rare diseases are ignored. What are other spaces that are ignored or perhaps underrated? Or maybe can you talk a bit about other investments you've made or, or, or if not your investment thesis broadly in terms of where you're looking to make investments? I think the way we do medicine today is really unsustainable. 
And, and what I mean by that is it's largely focused on acute intervention rather than preventative efforts. And there's a reason for this, right? Acute intervention with, and what I mean by that is we wait until people get, you know, pretty sick and then we do whatever we can to try to keep them alive. That is pretty much the entire space and how medicine is thought of uh, for the last uh, 50 years. And the reason why that is that way is because of where we put our investment money. So traditionally, I, I would say biopharma, you know, pharma companies were probably some of the original VCs, right? Putting, putting money into new companies that, uh, that are coming into the biopharma space. And what they were interested in investing in were these drugs, new drugs that yes, have a low chance of actually getting through to, uh, FDA approval. But if they did, it's like, it's likely to be a great return on investment. When you're talking about preventative medicine, things like color and 23andMe, what they're doing, things like what Freenome is doing on the screening side, return on investment is not quite as clear or traditionally hasn't been quite as clear, right? On, cause, cause for these simple tests that you can take, you can't really charge that much money per test, right? Some of these immuno-oncology drugs that have been approved in the last few years, they're going for $250,000 per pop. You can't, you can't sell blood tests for $250,000, right? You're lucky if you can sell it for a few hundred dollars. And so the investment money and where has traditionally gone in biopharma has traditionally been skewed towards therapeutics. Is that still true today? Oh, I mean, I think largely so. I think in the last few years, we've seen a, a very intense focus on diagnostics companies like we've never seen before. That's because of advances in technology that have made them better or why? It's, it's advances in technology, but it, you know, if you look at cancer screening specifically, Freenome as well as Grail and these other companies have raised a lot of money, uh, and have been able to raise a lot of money. Uh, and why is that? Well, cancer screening is kind of unique in the diagnostic space. It's not a one time thing, right? Uh, a blood test, uh, must be taken on a regular basis for, for it to be properly preventative, but also, Cancer screening is something that has an incredibly large market. So just, you know, to give you one example, Freenome has a clinical trial that's going on right now in early detection of colorectal cancer with the ultimate hopes that we can replace a blood test or we can use a blood test to replace colonoscopies for early detection. And last year in the United States, 93.5 million people should have gotten screened for colorectal cancer. And of those people, only 20 million people did anything uh, in terms of screening and 73.5 million people did nothing. So if you're talking about blood tests that are selling for, you know, a couple hundred dollars or so, and your market is 70 plus million people for a single cancer type, all of a sudden the market size starts making sense to provide venture like returns in a way that diagnostics traditionally hasn't done. Yeah. So say more about where you see the opportunities in preventive healthcare for other, you know, entrepreneurs or talented people listening to this who want to build a company in the space. What's your sort of request for products, whether in prevent or startups or in, in terms of whether it's preventive healthcare or other places in healthcare where you want to see people experiment and, and innovate? I think uh, one of the biggest problems in healthcare is just uh, data integrity. So anyone, I think being clever about getting healthcare data and doing something interesting with the healthcare data on a massive scale is, is a winner. I think I haven't, uh, so I, I've seen a lot of companies that propose doing all sorts of things with healthcare data, but they haven't thought a lot about how they're going to actually get the healthcare data. 
right? How are you going to unlock these EHRs? Because it doesn't actually scale very well. It's it's kind of a long sales cycle to essentially uh, negotiate with these uh, individual hospitals to get access to their electronic health records. So I think as EHRs become unlocked more and more by the EHR providers uh, like Epic and Athena, we're going to we're going to see a surge of companies that are actually going to be able to take advantage of those kinds of data. Because today, a lot of data-driven healthcare companies, their specific advantage is they have some in or some way of generating data um, that others can't. I think that's going to quickly change over the next five years as these EHRs get democratized. And then that advantage will no longer exist. And then we're going to see a surge of uh, companies that enter into this space. And it's going to become, you know, how clever can they be with their data uh, and and uh, their go-to-market strategies? Are we sure they are going to become democratized? No, but but I think we're seeing really encouraging movements towards that. Some of them by the more uh, the incumbents like Epic, uh, which are starting to work with companies to provide access to their data. And then we're going to see, you know, some of these big tech companies that are uh, moving into the space like Apple uh, with with HealthKit to have people integrate their EHR directly into that mobile platform. And then Apple provides access to it. So I, I do think one way or another, we're going to get there, whether we get there in the next five years, you know, as opposed to 10 years, I think is the main question. Are there any points where the intersection of blockchain and healthcare makes sense? I'm not a blockchain expert, so I, I don't, you know, I haven't looked very carefully into this. It's, it's also not been my specific focus on a day to day, uh, with Freenom. So I, you I, I you're not ICOing. <laughs> I'm most definitely not ICOing, but. I do think that uh, traceability is a really important aspect uh, whenever you're dealing with health data of any kind. I think the patient health information uh, or PHI is a, a, a really important thing to sort of anonymize. And I think blockchain has applications on both those things, the, the data integrity and the anonymization of the data. But I haven't, I, I guess... I haven't seen a really good execution of this, partly because of how entrenched the EHRs are in the healthcare space currently. Building a company in the cancer screening space is different than building a mobile app, which is different than building a fintech company. I'm curious for you to expound a little bit about things that you wish you knew when you started Freedom. I think because of my background in technology and in research prior to starting Freedom, my bias or my emphasis um, start in starting Freenome was always that if we can solve the scientific or the technological problem to actually achieve screening, then we would be there, right? That we will have solved cancer screening. I think that was an extremely naive perspective. The build it and they will come does not exist in diagnostics. It just doesn't. You basically have to force people to get screened for uh, cancer today. I mean, as, as I mentioned before, you know, 90 million people should get a screen. Only 20 million people did. And these are people that are being told by their doctors to go and get screened for these diseases. But how do you force people to get, do it? Well, you don't really. Um, you know, what you do is you work with the clinicians. You convince the clinicians that these patients uh, really need to get screened. And then you have to just make it as easy as possible for those patients to get screened, right? From that perspective, the UX really matters, just like in anything else. When you're looking at, for example... Uh, a fecal test, right? The rate of return uh, from a patient perspective of a fecal test versus a blood test is pretty astounding, right? Uh, people don't like pooping into a bucket and and returning that, so they don't end up doing it even if they get the kit. Whereas, and and I'm the worst, of, I'm one of the worst offenders of this, right? I got a 
uh, physical done like six months ago and I got all my blood tests done immediately because they just go and uh, draw it at the clinic and my poop kit is still sitting in my bathroom sink. <laughs> right. Um, so I think UX matters a lot. And this is one of the reasons why Freenome feels really passionately about early detection of cancer having to be done through blood because the blood draw is something that patients are really comfortable with or a- at least used to. Uh, not everyone's comfortable with a blood draw, but but it would be endorsed by a lot more people than some of these other methods that exist today. So that was one of the big realizations. The other uh, realization is, at least for the type of thing that we're doing today, patients don't really like paying for screening tests. Because cancer screening tests, right, if you think about it, at best, you're talking about neutral news. And, and at worst, it's probably one of the worst news you could get in your life. People don't really seek out things like that. They will do it because they want to stay around for their families, for their loved ones. They will do it begrudgingly, but they probably won't necessarily, I mean, with the exception of, you know, certain sectors of population that are just very worried about their health in general and willing to or able to pay a lot of money to do so. Generally, people are not going to shell out hundreds of dollars for a screening test, which means that in order for a test to be really widely adopted uh, in the healthcare system, you're going to have to get it covered by the insurance companies or what we call payers in the healthcare system, right? Because they're the ones that really pay for things. Getting reimbursement from payers for a diagnostic is a very difficult task um, that takes many years after you get validation of your test. So if you look at companies like Foundation Medicine, you look at companies like Garden Health who you know, have gotten Medicare coverage, right? Medicare being one of the largest payers in the, in the United States. It took them several years after they got FDA approval of, of their test. Well, a garden is, I don't think FDA approved, but foundation medicine certainly, uh, uh, was right. And, and they got FDA approval and some like three, three to five years later, they got CMS coverage. So it's, it's about convincing payers. Hey, if I'm going to pay for this blood test, that's worth hundreds of dollars upfront. What am I getting on the back end? How much money am I actually saving? Right now, your intuition would sort of say, okay, we spend 80% of all healthcare spend in the United States is on cancer and people dying of cancer. So if you can detect these diseases early when you can actually cure it, you would save a lot of money on the back end. But you can't use intuition as an argument for payers to uh, uh, reimburse your tests. You have to actually generate data. You have to show that the people you detect these diseases early on actually have a better outcome than the people who don't, which is a multi-year project, right? It's a multi-year clinical trial that you have to essentially do to show that you're going to save money. And so one of the things that I realized is FDA approval is actually relatively easy to get into diagnostics because FDA approval literally just means that your test performs like you said it does. It doesn't even have to be that good. There are FDA approval, uh, approved cancer screening tests that have like 60% accuracy, but they said it was 60% accuracy. So it was fine. They got FDA approval. What's much more important um, if you want your screening or diagnostic test to be widely adopted is it has to be pair covered. And in order for it to be pair covered, the bar is much higher in terms of do you actually bring utility uh, with your test? in terms of better outcomes and uh, better economics. And what has your journey been like working with payers, trying to convince payers? I'm not sure if, you know, or what does the progress look like? 
this this is one of the reasons why we're going after colorectal cancer first. Um, in, in fact, it's interesting because in some ways, colorectal cancer is not even the easiest indication to go after f- uh, from a technology perspective. But one thing that we found is people are actually already very used to getting screened for colorectal cancer uh, compared to some of these other cancer types, right? If you think about, well, what are some of the other, you know, cancer screening methods? Maybe you come up with one other, you know, mammography maybe, but the vast majority of the cancer types don't really have regular screening tests. And so the screening paradigm is already there. There are already pretty decent tests that exist that are not blood tests um, that have been FDA approved in the colorectal cancer arena, who've already shown that early detection of colorectal cancer actually leads to better outcomes. Um, so we don't have to show that again. We have to just show that we have a blood test that uh, performs pretty well in terms of detecting can- uh, colorectal cancer early. And we have a much better chance of getting that reimbursed because we don't have to prove out that second part of the utility uh, argument. Yeah. What's your advice for companies regarding FDA approval, like in terms of how to best practices? Talk to them as early as possible. In my experience with the FDA, they are always willing to talk to you about your technology. They want to learn. I think, especially in the last few years, I think we've seen a pretty strong motivation from the FDA to understand deep learning and machine learning um, in and, and how it can uh, apply to healthcare. And so they really want to learn. They want to be educated uh, by you on how you're going about things. And then they will give you some advice on, you know, uh, how to approach uh, these problems such that by the time you actually do uh, what's called the FDA pre-sub, the pre-submission uh, for your uh, application, you should have already gotten a pretty decent idea of how you should set up your trial to answer the question at hand from the horse's mouth, right? I think there's hesitation among a lot of companies and especially Silicon Valley companies to sort of shy away from, you know, talking to the regulatory bodies, at least until they're ready. And, and I think that's a a big mistake because then I think it's going to take time from the first time you talk to the FDA onward to, to actually get it right. So I've seen companies having to do multiple FDA pre-submissions before they actually get it right, which takes them extra time. What are other mistakes companies make as it relates to go to market or what are some things that they should understand or do differently or that are fundamentally different in healthcare? You know, build it and they will come doesn't exist, uh, at least for the diagnostic side of things. I think the other thing is uh, almost every founder that I've spoken to in this space underestimate how long it's going to take. It will take much, much longer than you could possibly imagine. You look at some of these diagnostics companies of the past, they took 10 plus years to get their first product out. And let's say that machine learning is this wonderful, magical thing. And, uh, you know, that can greatly accelerate your research and development. Research and development is the first step to getting a product out. And then if you're on the diagnostic side, you have to get, you know, some kind of clinical validation, whether it's Clio or FDA. And then you have to go for reimbursement uh, if that's, you know, what you're really wanting to do. You could, you could, you know, have a test that's out of pocket for people um, if your market speaks to that. But then even after you get reimbursement for cancer screening uh, specifically and, and screening tests uh, specifically, you have to get into the medical guidelines, uh, the guidelines that clinicians follow when they offer uh, clinical tests for patients. Right. Uh, so in the screening case, there is something called the USPSTF, the United States Preventative Screening Task Force. And they, that is the guideline that most primary clinicians in the United States follow 
as far as offering screening tests. They will not use your screening tests unless you're in those guidelines. USPSTF meets every five years to make decisions on new screening tests. So if you miss whatever deadline that you're coming up with, you're, you're talking about waiting another five years, right? And, you know, so there, there are these kinds of things that I really didn't know about, you know, how to get a diagnostic out. I think when I started a company that uh, I wish I knew and, you know, ther- for therapeutics, there are these barriers, you know, that take time and there's really not much you can do about it to make it go faster. I mean, I have uh, certain things that I've learned about working with biospecimens specifically, right? So like this one wouldn't apply to people who are doing EHRs or you know, structured data on the healthcare. But for example, uh, in the cancer screening space, uh, specifically, if you're using machine learning methods or if you're, you know, just trying to do research and development to come up with new tests, the exact nature of the blood test that you collect matters. So we've worked with some of the finest institutions in the United States in terms of hospitals that send us these blood samples where we do research and development. And even then, probably about 5% of the time, we get samples that are labeled male that have two X chromosomes, you know, uh, samples that are labeled female that have X and Y chromosome. And so there's some mislabeling that's, you know, happening there. On top of that, it makes a difference, for example, if this blood sample was drawn from somebody who already knew that they had cancer versus uh, a true screening application, like somebody who didn't know that was about to go and get the diagnostic test done. Well, why does this matter? Well, when somebody is told that they have cancer, they rightfully become really stressed out. When they get stressed out, there's a stress response in your body. There's uh, chemicals like cortisol and things like that that gets released into the blood that actually changes how your DNA fragments, how cell-free DNA gets degraded in your uh, body. And so oftentimes what you see these companies that are trying to make these tests, they train on samples that are you know, post-diagnosis. But then what they're really fitting to is not cancer versus healthy, but the stress response versus not stressed. And then when they go to validate that test, that performance completely falls apart because they fit it to the wrong signal. So like there are these really uh, specific nuances for each application of healthcare, um, especially if you're dealing with biospecimens that you need to worry about with your data. If you're trying to apply technology and these novel machine learning methods to uh, applications in healthcare. Yeah. Anything you want to say around fundraising? Because you have been very successful about that. And for a lot of people, that might be not, not as easy. For healthcare companies, especially, there is a tendency or um, there is a desire to sort of show investors that, hey, this is going to go much faster than, you know, previous companies have. I think that's a, that's a mistake. You might be able to raise the first round, maybe the seed round, because, you know, raising a couple million dollars is not that difficult compared to the follow-up rounds, right? But then what happens when you start missing those milestones? Right. And inevitably you will if you're, you know, trying to be really aggressive about your timelines. And then it's going to be, you know, really difficult to um, have your existing investors support you. Uh, it would be really difficult for new investors to come in if you radically change your timelines um, as you go along. So I think as scary as it is, it's really important for you to be patient and find the right investors who see the long term vision of what you're trying to do and, you know, uh, realize Hey, this could be a five or 10 year, you know, roadmap to any kind of product that actually goes out. Right. And most VCs, at least, are not going to be tolerant of that kind of a timeline, but some are. And if you get the right ones, they will stand by you as you, as the years go by so that you can actually do this right. And, and rushing it is just, just not a good thing. 
I think the other thing, you know, is to just show, especially for healthcare companies, is founders need to be less vision oriented, more asking them, you know, or more sort of outlining to investors, how risky is this uh, particular business? And the lovely thing about healthcare is despite how fancy your technology is or, you know, how good your machine learning algorithm is and things like that, there are certain milestones like the regulatory, the reimbursement milestones that have a lot of precedence, right? So in most biotech companies, you're going to have precedence that you can look to. And historically, those companies have gone public relatively early. So you can even, you know, figure out the exact comps. And so you can, you know, do your research and be really data oriented in terms of representing risk to your investors, which is something that I haven't seen a lot of founders do very successfully, but something that I think we focused on a lot at Freenome uh, at the beginning is, yes, this is going to take multiple years, but here's what happened to these, you know, uh, companies that were comparable who, as they hit these milestones, and then you sort of discount back from uh, those market caps to where you are today. And it gives a lot more sort of concrete ideas of uh, risk, which is what investors really try to assess, right? We, we try to assess what is the risk uh, of these companies uh, and set the valuation accordingly. So I think I, I would like to see more uh, health uh, tech investors who are wanting to go into healthcare be better and more structured about um, how they assess risk. Because I think traditionally in tech, they don't do that quite as much, right? Because it's it's really about blowing it out big or you know whatever. Um, whereas in healthcare, there are these specific steps that have a very specific effect on your valuation that you can actually use as guideposts to set your valuation today. Totally. Cool. Well, on that note, Gabriel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Any last minute plugs or where should people find you or, or Freenome online? You know, we're, we're in clinical trials now and, you know, we're doing this step by step. You can find out more about what we're doing at freenome.com. That's F-R-E-E-N-O-M-E.com. And hopefully you'll see our products in the future. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 